0: Our scripture reading this morning is in Psalm 96. And uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, that's on page 499. Oh, it is blinding up here. Man. <laughs> that's being real for you. Psalm 96. Listen to the word of God and receive it like that. He says, Psalm 96, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of God.
1: Well, if you're a guest with us, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors and we are in the tail end of a series on worship. We're calling it Worship Matters, and we've been looking at various tensions that should exist as we worship God, as we gather together as his people, and we've looked at God's greatness and God's nearness as a tension. We've looked at the tension of head and heart. We've looked at internal and external, that is physical expression and internal emotion. We've also looked at um, vertical and horizontal last week, and Jonathan also dipped into planned and spontaneous. So, we're doing, a, he, he, he kind of combined two tensions because he did a, an exposition of Ephesians 5 18 to 21, which has both of those tensions in it. So, we're going to skip forward a little bit and add a tension that we really didn't previously plan on, and that is for the church and for unbelievers. It's sort of an application of the vertical and horizontal tension, and I think you'll see that as we walk through Psalm 96 this morning. So, this morning's focus is on the worship gathering being for the church and for unbelievers. John Frame, in his book, Worship in Spirit and Truth, writes the following about this tension. Quote, the focus of our worship should be on pleasing God. Amen? For this principle, some might conclude that we should pay no attention to any human needs in worship. Talk like that may sound very pious, but it is unbiblical. In worship, we should not be so preoccupied with God that we ignore other people. Worship has a horizontal dimension as well as a vertical focus. It is to be God centered, but it is also to be both edifying and evangelistic. Worship that is unedifying and unevangelistic may not properly claim to be God centered. Amen. I think it's what we're going to see in Psalm 96. Worship that is unedifying. And unevangelistic. That is that has no reference to the church. Or unbelievers. Is not God centered worship. So who is worship for? For whose eyes. Should we worship? Who is the audience. Of our worship. If. Who should, be, who should we be concerned about as we worship? If your answer is God and God alone, Psalm 96 is going to challenge your paradigm and force you to realize that there is not one audience for worship, but biblically three audiences for worship. There is God himself, there is the church as we gather, and there is the watching world. So those are our three tensions that we're going to open up. Or really, it's one tension, but we're going to open it up from three different angles this morning. There are three distinct audiences that the church needs to be aware of as it gathers for worship week in and week out. There are many sets of eyes that witness the worshiping church. And the first and primary and most important of those eyes, though not exclusive, is God's eyes Himself. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with the audience of God because that's where Psalm 96 starts. Look, at, look with me at verses 1 and 2. He says, who our singing is to be addressed to. Oh, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Pretty clear, right? Who are we supposed to be singing to? The Lord. He says it repeatedly. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Sing to the Lord. Three times in two verses. He's not done though. He says it again in verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. That is, tell God how glorious and strong he is. God wants to hear it from you. He knows it. But he wants you to tell him. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts, his courts, his offering. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Couldn't be clearer. We are to ascribe to God, ascribe to the Lord, worship the Lord, bless the Lord, sing to the Lord. He is our first and primary audience. He's the center of all of our worship. He's the single most glorious being in the whole universe, the one to whom we ascribe the greatest and highest worth. After all, worship starts with God, doesn't it? I don't mean it just starts with God. It starts in God. Worship is not something that just creatures do. Worship is something that God does. Worship existed prior to creation. In the fellowship of the Trinity, where God exists in loving relationship, the Father exalting the Son, the Son exalting the Father, the Spirit celebrating both. Creation was just the spillover of Trinitarian worship. Worship created the world. Worship flows out of this glory-sharing outpouring that exists within the three-in-one. They created the universe. For all of creation in the beginning, worship was perpetual. Think about it. Adam and Eve, when they were created, worship was one ongoing celebrative response to all that God did, all that God is doing, and all that God promised to do. It was an unbroken, loving response to God's work as their creator, caretaker, and Lord in Eden. All creation, animals, trees, Everything that's in the sky, everything that's on the earth, offered ceaseless, unending praise to God the creator in one single unified hallelujah. One single amen for a brief period of time until sin came into the world. And make no mistake, Satan's agenda in the garden was to hijack worship. Satan sought to deflect praise from God as the object of their treasuring and their trusting and tempting them to worship what the fruit offered and what he offered behind it more than what God offers. He wanted them to ascribe greater worth to his promises than to God's. He wanted them to disobey Psalm 96. He wanted to not ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, but to ascribe to themselves glory and strength. That's Satan's agenda. Stop worshiping God. Stop looking to God for strength and glory. Get it from yourself. Be self-reliant and glory-seeking. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters. We worship our way into sin. That's what Adam and Eve did. And as a result of our fall into sin, we don't lose the capacity to be worshipers. It's just that sin has hijacked it and redirected it. Praise still pours out of every single human being, but it's lost its proper home. Worship continues 24-7 around our world, unabated, uninterrupted, but it's disconnected from the God who made us largely. Because we're born in sin with a severed relationship with God, we worship the creation rather than the creator, Romans says. We worship self, money, power, sex, spouses, children, family, work, leisure, any number of things. But this isn't the final word. That's the story of the Bible up to the coming of Christ. Is idolatry, worship, problems, all misdirected worship. And Christ comes in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, setting the stage. In the New Testament, as he comes to right our worship problem, he comes to die for our idolatry and God the Father's judgment against our false worship and to bring us back into a right relationship with God. And as a response for what he has done for us, for who he is, we worship him. We worship God the Father now, filled with the Spirit, which was purchased by Jesus for us, As he is done away with our sin, the maker of heaven and earth finds us well-pleasing in his sight. And our worship done humbly in Jesus' name is received with great joy by the Father. Would you turn with me just a couple of psalms over to Psalm 103? Where the psalmist David, though he did not walk with Christ on the earth because he wasn't around at that time. He's still an Old Testament saint. But don't miss this. He worshiped God in light of what Christ was coming to do. And his entire trust was in the promised Redeemer that was to come. Notice the focus of his worship. Verse 1 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, you don't even have to preach this. It preaches itself, doesn't it? So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so far as he removed our transgressions from us as a father shows compassion on his children so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him verse 17 but the lo- steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him Don't forget the Lord's benefits and then he lists all of them Do you know that's what happens when we become a Christian When we get saved, we get converted to Jesus to follow him as his disciple. We look at the benefits of sin and we look at the benefits of Christ and we say those benefits are better. That's what Jesus comes to do. He comes to offer us greater benefits. We got to worship our way out of sin. We worshiped our way into it. We got to worship our way out. And that's what David models for us right here. He says to his own soul, soul, don't forget God's benefits. Don't forget that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love and mercy, that he does not repay us according to our sins, that he doesn't chide. His steadfast love is on me from everlasting to everlasting. I fear him. I love him. He's removed my transgressions as far as the east is from the west. They will never meet me in the day of judgment. Soul, remember this. And he worships his way out of sin. Focused on the redeemer that he knows very well now. So make no mistake that when we gather together, brothers and sisters, we gather as sinners saved by grace. We don't gather as this holier than thou, super righteous, morally perfect group of people. Good grief. But the world thinks that. And they part get it from us. Because we act that way. The gospel hasn't penetrated us and changed us enough to free us from our perpetual quest to uphold our self image. I want people to think well of me. Oh, think well of me, world. I'm so cool. I'm awesome. You are not cool and you are not awesome. And neither am I. If you want to be cool, it'll last for seven minutes. Maybe. Then you have to find something else to keep you cool. It's a very, very hard life to live. But here's what Mike Cosper adds about that. We gather as broken sinners. He says... We imagine, as we gather with the church, to be a special holier-than-thou bunch. We fear that the moment we enter the room, someone will discover that we're faking it, we're imposters, and we'll be kicked to the curb. The gospel tells us just the opposite. It reminds us that this gathering is always made up of sinners saved by grace, nothing more and nothing less. It reminds us as well that the hard work is already done. The sins we abhor have been fully paid by Jesus. And finally, it tells us that the most important audience member in our worship is completely pleased with us in Jesus. All this to say that having God in our audience means that there is one who accepts us just as we are and deems our imperfect worship as made perfect in Jesus. Amen. And so that's the God that we gather and that watches us. He looks at us and what he desires to see is sinners saved by grace exalting in the gospel. Because that's what the worship of heaven is all about. Have you read Revelation 5 lately? They seem to make a lot of the lamb. And we should too. That's what pleases the Lord. So that's our first audience. We sing to the Lord, but we sing to the Lord from a posture of redemption. Those who have been redeemed by him, saved by him, who know his benefits, who know his love, who know his forgiveness who know his ongoing care. But that's not our only audience. A, A second audience for worship is the church, and Psalm 96 lays this out. So if you're in 103 like I am, you want to flip back a few pages. I just want you to notice something about this psalm. Is this psalm sung to the Lord? Or is it a command to sing to the Lord? The second This is a psalm that Israel would have sung to itself. They're not singing to the Lord. They're calling the gathering to sing to the Lord. It would have been a song perhaps that they started off their gatherings with. Oh, sing to the Lord. They're singing to each other. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord with me, will you? Sing to the Lord. Let's bless his name. Let's tell of his salvation. And then they give themselves reasons in verse four for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. They're not saying great. Are you Lord great? Are you to be praised! You are to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. They're telling themselves about why God is great and deserves their singing. That's what they're doing. And they remind themselves that. The idols of the world are worthless, verse 5. For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. They're reminding themselves of truths about God and singing them to each other. This is oh so important to get when we gather as a church. Most of our songs, at least a good portion of them, are not sung directly to God. They're sung about God to each other. Pastor Jonathan uh, helped us see this last week when he talked about the hymns of the early church in Colossians 1 that we have in our Bibles, like Colossians one fifteen to 23, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Those are all hymns that the early church would have sung that God incorporated into the letters of Paul as reminders They say they had sung these in their gatherings. He's using them for teaching purposes. So a lot of the songs in the early church were confessional and declarative. They were sung about God in the presence of God, but to one another. And, of course, Pastor Jonathan opened that up with Ephesians 5.19, where the command is specifically to sing to one another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And Colossians 3.16 makes the same point. So the gathering of the church is not only an encounter with God, but much more, it is an encounter with God that's intensified among the people of God, filled with the spirit of God, spurring one another on in the mission of God. That's what makes corporate worship so special. It's it's that we are gathering together as individual temples in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, and then you get a jam-packed group of people indwelt by the spirit of god now the spirit fills all in all and he is reigning and ruling and manifesting his presence in a unique and special way worship is communal it's not individualistic christ in me meets christ in you meets christ in us Cosper again writes, So when we gather, we sing to each other. We declare the truths of the gospel to one another. Our presence and our participation is not merely for the sake of our individual relationship with God, demonstrating our confidence and hope, but it's also for our brothers and sisters' sake. Our participation in the gathering is testimony and encouragement to them. When you sing, you are speaking the truth in love to your church around you and your bold confession of faith may be exactly what someone nearby needs to hear in the midst of his or her dark hours. Likewise, you may be the one who needs to receive comfort that comes from the praises of God's people, end quote. That's what worship is. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I walk in those doors and I am absolutely dead to preach. I don't want to preach. I mean, I want to, but you know. My soul's not deeply engaged. I've been prayerful. I've sought to repent. I'm believing the gospel. But my heart is not in it. And you know what changes that? You singing. That's what changes that. You help me preach every single time I preach. And I think Pastor John say say the same thing. I wouldn't want to preach if I had to preach first. I need about 30 minutes of people singing the truth of God to my soul and then I can be ready to preach. And do you th- I want you to think this way when you come to church. That's why you sing, that's why you express yourself, that's why you engage in worship, cuz somebody's going to get cancer in 2 weeks. Or go through a trial or something difficult. And they're going to need to lean in and borrow some of your faith for a little while. And to see you reminds them that there is a God who rules and reigns in the hearts of his people and who is enough, who is enough. Especially when we know each other's stories. And oh, the importance of community for worship. If we're a bunch of people that don't know each other's stories... That don't know what God has done. We will not be, when we see that brother or sister worshiping, we won't be able to get any comfort from that. But if we know the pain that that brother or sister's been going through, or if we know something of what God did in their conversion, then boy, it can fill our souls with joy. And that's why we're gonna incorporate more testimonies, because we do want each other to know each other and be able to rejoice in what God has done in each other, so that when we see each other worshiping, we have some backstory on just what the Lord has done for your soul, yes. which the Psalms encourage us to do. Come, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what He has done for my soul. So when we're passive about worship, passive about attending, passive about engaging, we rob the church. We rob the church. Don't rob the church. You're singing prepares others to suffer. Your singing provokes others to love and good deeds. Your singing fills others with faith. Your singing reminds them of the truths of the gospel. Your singing builds up the body of Christ. What a privilege we have to add our voices to an assembly. It's an amazing blessing. It's not just a, oh, here we're singing again. No, it's a my vo- at lending my voice to the worship of the church builds up, encourages, and strengthens the church. And therefore, this is not possible unless we're in the church and gathering with the church. And I know I'm speaking to, to people, the vast majority of our church, you guys are so faithful about gathering. It's a priority for you. You don't let other things kind of set your schedule. You say, no, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be with the people of God. Unless I'm sick, unless I'm hindered in some legitimate way, I'm with the people of God. I'm with them. But for those of you who have friends in our church who, who aren't that way, would you encourage them along these lines? Don't just guilt them. Don't, don't just go to them and say, Eh, missed you at church. Didn't see you there. Don't do that. Just say something real. Okay? Say something real. Be real with them. And talk about how, you know what, when you're missed at church, here's what the Bible says we miss. That's not guilt. That's love. It's a loving appeal. It's not a, oh, you should feel so awful. God hates you now. No, but when we, as we gather with the church, we sing to the Lord together in each other's presence and sing to one another in God's presence. Both of those are very, very critical and very, very important. Let me go to the third one. So that's the first audience, or I said the first audience was God himself. We sing to the Lord, but then we also sing to each other. That's what's going on in Psalm 96. They're singing to each other. Third point. In Psalm 96, they're not only singing to each other and calling each other to sing to the Lord, but they're also singing for the world. Look at verse 3 to 6. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Worship is not church-centric. Worship is world-oriented. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of all the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You see, worship is missional. It's missional. It has an, it has an evangelistic thrust to it. Look at verse 10. Say among the nations. This is Israel. Call, call, hey, Israel, say this to the nations. Say this to your neighbors. Say this in your workplace. Say this outside of these walls in this community and to the ends of the earth. Say this. The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. When people are all like, oh, no, what's going to happen next? ISIS is coming after us. What's going to happen? What's going to? The Lord reigns. The earth shall never be moved. Stop acting like things are going upside down, teeter-tottering. Your trust can be in the Lord who reigns over all things. That's very practical for where most people live. Because we are an anxious, crazy bunch, including me. I'm not saying, don't hear from that, that we should be super passive and not engage, engage in just war, okay? Don't hear that. I'm just saying the ultimate foundation of our trust is not in chariots and horses or politicians, our trust is in the name of the Lord, our God. Yes. Yes. And so here, the psalmist is reminding us, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Keep calm and walk with God. That's what he's telling you. You've seen all the shirts, right? Keep calm in this. Keep calm, the Lord reigns. Don't wear that. It's cheesy. It's dumb. But your attitude should be that. All right. So I'm not going to judge you if you wear that shirt. Sorry. Probably somebody's going to show up here next week with a keep calm and the lord reigns shirt on. I'm going like, to No, but your, your, the posture of your soul should be it, we should wake up every day and say, look, okay. What's most fundamental? The Lord reigns, the earth shall never be moved. The world is established, God's going to judge. Whoo! Whistle while you work. Whistle. <laughs> it's not that easy. But you get the point. Right, it's that's such a centering truth, isn't it? The Lord reigns; He rules over all. The world is fixed; it's not going to be moved unless God says it, and He's going to take care of ultimate judgment. So it's 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 meant to center us and calm us down. I mean, Israel, you know what they were like; they were the object of ridicule and disdain, and they needed truths like this, and we need it because if you haven't woken up recently, we're headed for the margins, brother and sisters. This truth is going to be really important for us when we're not the cultural majority anymore. And then he says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. See the missional impulse here? Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult. It's everything. They're calling upon all of creation, all the peoples, all the nations to declare Jesus ultimately as king. So as we gather together, we proclaim to the surrounding world that Jesus is king, that he alone saves, and that he is their only hope. The Lord reigns. And the New Testament assumes that unbelievers are going to be observing and participating in our church worship. Pastor Jonathan reminded us of this text last week, but I think it's important to read again. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25 reminds us that we should expect unbelievers to be present. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So there's an unbeliever coming into the midst of a corporate gathering, hearing the word of God to him, convicted of his sins, falling down, becomes a Christian. That's the picture. So notice this. Nonbelievers are expected to be in the Christian gathering. And they should find the praise of Christians comprehensible to them. And they, should fall under, they can fall under conviction and be converted through comprehensible worship. Worship that they understand. Here's what Tim Keller says about this passage. It cannot be missed that Paul directly tells a local congregation to adapt its worship because of the presence of unbelievers. It is a false dichotomy to insist that if we are seeking to please God, we must not ask what the unchurched feel or think about our worship. God wants the world to overhear us worshiping him. God directed his people not simply to worship, but to sing his praises before the nations. Psalm 96.3 right there. We are not to simply communicate the gospel to them. We are to celebrate the gospel in front of them. That's crucial. That's crucial. We don't, we're not, we don't merely communicate the gospel to unbelievers. We celebrate the gospel before unbelievers. Now, let me conclude with some words of application about these three audiences and how an overemphasis on anyone can lead us to imbalance. First of all, let's talk about an overemphasis on the, the audience of God, God alone. I mean, well-meaning Christians have said things like, you know, we worship for an audience of one. I'm sorry, but it's just not true. Singing only to God is the emphasis of worship. It's a, it's a primary goal. It's, it's, it, all obviously, we gather to worship the Lord, but to say that he is our only audience in a purely vertical way violates what we've seen in Psalm 96, this horizontal dimension. And you know how this gets justified. Mean, you, you can see how these two extremes can, can begin to manifest themselves in different branches of the church. You know, you would have perhaps our more charismatic brothers and sisters, maybe in the Pentecostal tradition or something like that, good brothers and sisters. But they might take it in the sense of, you know, it's all about my vertical interaction with God. It's all about just me and Jesus here. And I'm going to sing and I'm going to do what I feel comfortable with in worship. And I'm going to try to edify myself and build myself up. And Paul just rebukes all of that nonsense in 1 Corinthians 14. He's like, the church gathering's not about you. It's about you building up others. And lo and behold, you will, be, you will see that, that how that will build you up. You're going about it the wrong way. It's not just a vertical thing. It's a horizontal thing. And so you get this, all, all kinds of bizarre stuff can get justified. Well, I'm just worshiping the Lord and leading him, leading me to, he's leading me to do that. Well, how can you argue with that? Except the Bible. I mean, I'm sorry, barking like dogs and being stuck to the floor with Holy Spirit glue—that's not going to wash with the Bible. But it would wash if your sole audience is Jesus. See, people can engage in really bizarre worship stuff. But here's here here let's talk about the let's talk about the Presbyterians and the Baptists too, right? How about silence before worship? How about quiet, be quiet, sit down, shut up and pray. How about that attitude? How about this attitude of um, let's get rid of relational warmth and accessibility because we're going after God here. And people walk in like, whoa, who's that cult? You see, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a misplaced understanding. It, it sounds pious and feels holy, But it's just insensitive and lacks love. In the name of sola scriptura. Well, let's really be sola scriptura. Let's do Psalm 96. Let's have God, church, and world in view. I mean, that's reformed. Let's be biblical. Well, that's the overemphasis on God as the sole audience. Let's talk about the overemphasis on the church. Well, if we overemphasize this aspect of the church gathering and worship for the church, we can come across sometimes, at least in some traditions, as, as downright hostile to unbelievers. I mean, you've got these lengthy and comprehensible sermons with all this jargon that's unexplained. You've got these unexplained practice, practices, this holy huddle clickishness in a deep immersion in the Christian cultural ghetto where outsiders would feel more like uninvited guests to a family reunion. You ever felt that way? Whoa, I don't belong here. I mean, you don't want to be an uninvited guest to a family reunion, but churches can feel that way if they focus solely on, well, we're sorry you came here. Worship is really for the church, you know? And look, I'm not saying that, I'll get to that when I get to the world, because That'll be a, a balancing word. But we want those who are inspecting the Christian faith to not feel confused by our Christian ease. We don't want them thrown off by things that are completely foreign to them. We want to acknowledge the presence of our guests. We want to make them feel welcome and consider them in our planning. And if you're a guest with us, you're not a member of this church, and you don't even know if you're a Christian, I just want to tell you, you are totally welcome here. And I want you to come back, and I want you to feel totally welcome to get to know these people. They're great. All right? All right? You are welcome here. You are considered in our planning. You are thought for through through these sermons. And we love you and we want you here. Being aware of the presence of those who are skeptical to Christianity or perhaps unbelieving in our gatherings causes us to say things more simply, explain common Christian phrases and words, and occasionally address those who don't know the Savior. So that's an overemphasis on the church as a sole audience. Now let's talk about an overemphasis on the world as the sole audience. Well, we've seen the havoc this has wreaked on the church. An overemphasis on the world causes us to reshape our worship gatherings in a way that removes any and all roadblocks to faith, the offense of the gospel, watering down Christianity, making it easily palatable, attempting to make it cool, all that stuff. If we are doing what we're doing in a way that provides roadblocks to people embracing the gospel, then that's allowing the world to dictate our agenda. But we have to ask the question, is that really a roadblock? And we have to, we have to be willing to, 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 to enter into things and ask the question. We want to remove everything except the offense of the cross. We want, we, the gospel is offensive. We don't need to be. So let's, we want to preach the gospel unadulterated, not watered down in your face. Don't care if you don't like it, but make sure it's it that you don't like. Not any of our baggage that we hang on it. And it's very important. We don't want to water down truth. We're not interested in making Christianity cool. We're not interested in removing roadblocks or we're not interested in, in, uh, in, in creating road, uh, removing all the roadblocks to faith, namely like the offense of the gospel, you know, water down the truth, water down the gospel. Don't preach what is offensive. Don't, don't call sin, sin. Don't, Don't call works righteousness, works righteousness. Don't plead for people and tell Jesus is the only way. Don't say any of that. Real heaven, real hell. Yes, yes, yes. Keep saying it. We're gonna keep saying it. Because here's what happens when we don't do that. We don't build a church. Here's what Bob Coughlin writes. He says, when the entire church program revolves around drawing new people, When all your musical choices are geared to the tasks of non-Christians, it becomes difficult, if not impossible, to provide the teaching and nourishment the church needs. One pastor confessed that he'd been marketing his church for years, offering human enrichment rather than eternal and powerful truth. The unfortunate result is he said, quote, I have grown a church of baptized pagans. That's not what we're interested in. D.A. Carson adds, if the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. I mean, we're resolved by God's grace as a church to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we must not ignore outsiders when we gather, but neither must we allow the world to dictate the mission, direction, and values of the church. But here's what's encouraging, and this is where I'm going to conclude. This is what's really encouraging. The cure for all these overemphases is a robust fascination and fixation on the gospel. If we build our gatherings in and around and on the gospel... And celebrate the gospel, it brings together all those audiences. We worship the God who saves us by the gospel. We form the church in the gospel, and the world needs the gospel. So if we are hyper focused on Jesus Christ and Him crucified by God's grace, which is harder to keep focused than you would imagine, that's why Paul had to resolve. resolve to fix our eyes, our hearts, our attention on the gospel, then we will celebrate the God who saves, we will form our church in the gospel, and we will preach to the world their need of the gospel. Keller again says, The weekly worship service can be very effective in evangelism of non-Christians and in the edifications of Christians if it is gospel-centered. Because Christians need the gospel, and so do unbelievers. We all need it. So why would we try to say that we're different? Our worship services should get a feel of, wow, they're beggars and they've just told me where I can find food. That's the way it should feel. They have encountered the gospel. They believe it. That's what I need. They should feel like that what we have, they can get. They can't get our standards of morality that are up here. Well, I give up there. And a lot of churches believe that they have actually been faithful in doing that. That's what's crazy. They've caused people to run because they've given them law. That's what the law is supposed to do. Is make people run. And I'm not saying we don't preach the law. We preach it. But then we give them the gospel. So that they know that no, there's no one disqualified. The only thing that disqualifies you is you won't believe it. You won't trust it. You won't. You won't sacrifice yourself to give yourself to it. Frame concludes, John Frame says, the best way for us to love one another in worship is to share the joy of true worship without compromise, a joy that's focused on the good news of salvation. See, if we can just center ourselves, focus ourselves on the gospel, build our services around the gospel, build our lives in the gospel, we don't have to worry about, uh, are we honoring these audiences? No, we don't have to think like that because we will be so gospel-centered, so driven by that, so gripped by that, that the tension conversations just leave and all that's left is Jesus. And that's where we want to end every worship service anyway. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the time in your word together to think through um, who we are to be as we gather. We want to worship you. We want to sing to you. We want to do that right now in response to your word. We want to sing the truth to each other and build each other up in the faith. And we want more and more the watching world to be among us, to see us, to to see us celebrating Jesus. We thank you and we glory in his name today. Amen.
0: Let's stand and respond. Thank you.